Ron Gilbert, and welcome to the weekly Thimbleweed Park stand-up meeting podcast. Of course, this week we're doing Friday questions, and it could also possibly be the last podcast we do for Thimbleweed Park. So um, I am joined by Gary Winnick. Hello. And David Fox. Hey there. So maybe we should have a moment of silence for the very last podcast. Uh, sad, sad. Should we do some some uh, eye drop crying? Oh yeah. I, I think we're missing the the intent behind a moment of silence here, but whatever. That's okay. That's okay. So anyway, we got amazing uh, Friday questions to do from people. So it might possibly be a long podcast because we have a lot of questions. Uh, and I am reading today, so shall we just get started? Or do do either you have anything you'd like to say um, beforehand? Well, first, first pod, it could be the last podcast, but it's the first podcast since the game ship. But uh, um, we, I think a lot of the questions are obviously the questions are addressing that, and you were going to like warn about spoilers, I guess. Yeah, this podcast is filled with spoilers. We're not going to make any attempt to hide any spoilers. So if you haven't played the game and you're trying to keep everything a secret, then it's probably best to not listen to this podcast until you have uh, have played the game. All right, let's jump right into it. Uh, Red Phantom asks, how much of Thimbleweed Park was playable in wireframe before the real art was added in? Did Gary initially do every room in wireframe. Um, I think that we um, did a great deal of them. Not, we, we didn't know what every single room was when we were first doing the wireframes. Uh, and then when Mark took over, I don't think he did um, uh, as, you know, so in, in retrospect, I would say we did probably like 80% of the rooms as wireframe or something like that. And we dropped a whole bunch of them. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's about right. I mean, a lot of the wireframe rooms are in the ending of the game. I think I think most of the ones that we actually did got into the ending. I think when Mark took over, he didn't really do wireframes. He did more of these black and white concept pieces. So we had a bunch of those, but I decided not to put them into the finale just because they're, the art was so different from that original wireframe that I just wanted to keep it you know, artistically consistent. So a lot of Mark's black and white rooms didn't make it in there. But I think if you look at Gary's wireframes plus, you know, Mark's black and white rooms, I think pretty much the whole game was done that way. There were more, I think it was more likely that there were some rooms that we had in the game in wireframe mode that got cut. Um, and I did put some of those into the to the game. There are There are a few... I mean, of all the rooms I could find, I put in all of the cut rooms that at least were in that wireframe art style. I think all of the cut rooms got put into the game at that yeah, point. Yeah, I think there might be like there was a, a bank ma a bank manager that was Mark's black and white room. Yeah, that was there, Mark's. There was also right. Yeah, and the and the um, county clerk's the county office, clerk's yeah. office. Yeah, that was all black and white that Mark had done. We didn't do a wireframe of the county clerk, or, you know, Gary didn't do a wireframe of the county clerk's office. But, yeah, I mean, for the most part, I mean, we did, you know, do wireframes or black and white concepts of all the rooms and had them wired into the game. And Mark, uh, Mark's and black and white concepts were pretty highly rendered, too. I mean, they were they were pretty close to the final, except not with all the shading and color. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, that was one of the things that the kind of the way that Mark really thought about art, he, he really thought about it in a lot of detail. So he didn't do, 
super rough concepts like Gary did, which I mean, I, I kind of wished Mark had been able to do really rough stuff because I think we could have iterated, but I think most of his stuff was, you know, 90% yeah. right to begin with. So it wasn't that big of a problem. And I think by the time Mark came on the project, there were very few rooms that we cut from his stuff. So very little of it was actually yeah, I mean, wasted work. Very close. His finals are very close to his, I'm going to call them wireframes, or as you said, black and whites. I believe, I'm not going to say for sure that when we do the um, PDF or the, you know, the art of, we're going to show a bunch of that stuff too, so people can be actually able to compare them then. All right. Stefano asks, is Doug based on a backer who pledged at that level? Uh, the answer to that is actually no. We had um, a, a caretaker that was uh, always, I think, at least in some of our earlier stuff. And then um, we just tried a different bunch of different sort of approaches. He actually was a real ordinary looking guy. And um, then we kind of came up with this sort of shorter, you know, more, um, I'm going to use the word stranger looking character that we all liked. And then the whole digging thing just kind of happened. I think uh, it might've been David's idea. I can't remember for sure. Yeah. Well, remember, I remember his name originally was Sam. Right. And, Just, well, he was. I think he's still called caretaker inside the code. In the code, it's caretaker. I remember. I think I named him. It was Sam from one of your earlier doc docs. I got that from. And it was like he had. I forgot what his last name. It definitely wasn't Scottish. Um, and when Jen did the, the playing cards, she was naming all the characters, and she just. I don't think she knew his name was Sam, so she just came up with Doug. And, no, I th I thought he was named Doug because. We had originally put him in the game, and then he was named Sam. And then Lauren, when she had oh, to Lauren write, some, yeah, Lauren had to write some stuff, and and she said, "Oh, I think his name should be Doug since he's digging all the right. time." Right. So, like, so that's where he got the name Doug. Yeah. So someone asked the, asked before about the um, dig Doug reference, and I think that is tied to that. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, because I think it was Lauren was the person that actually right. named named Doug Doug. Right. You're right. Um, and I think the idea. I remember from the brainstorming, he was just going to be digging out in the front. And then I think I had the idea to have him digging inside the house and then actually having him, you know, um, using the shovel to to dust dust the walls and dust the, um, you know, the, the curtains. And, and to every, basically the shovel was his, all, his tool to do everything there was to do. But we cut that and just kept him digging inside. Yeah, instead. just for animation. That was right. animation workload issues. right. right. I think he did start out as a much more normal character. And then when we started digging inside the house and then we had the strange Scottish accent, he just, he turned into a much more bizarre character at that point. But I think, you know, the other thing was with, with Doug was there was a whole puzzle chain, you know, where you did need to use him that involved his shovel and everything. And that was all cut. And we could have just cut Doug from the game at that point because he didn't really serve a purpose. But I think everybody kind of fallen in love with him by that point, and we just we just didn't want to cut him. Well, I should say that the uh, I think I when I was I wrote his little digging lines and stuff, and, and it just felt flat. And I felt like I was trying to write him as if he had a Scottish accent and doing a really bad job, and then ended up <laughs> finding this website that would convert English text to Scottish and and just use that completely to to get his dialogue. And I had to 
had to put his dialogue in the in the comments in English, so we actually people knew what he was saying for translation purposes. Yeah, I remember when we were doing the recording for him. It's like I, I had to go to the source code a couple of times and read the comments and go, okay, this is what he's actually saying. <laughs> but, I mean, unfortunately, we couldn't get a real Scottish person to read him, so it's it's actually just you know a, a, a Canadian actor doing a really bad Scottish accent. <laughs> Well, I think Doug probably isn't really Scottish. He just watched, he watched <laughs> well, Star Trek or something, and yeah, he was trying or, to. Or groundskeeper Willie. Like, he just watched too much of the Simpsons. French mimes accent or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. That mime was supposed to be bad. I don't feel too bad about that. All right, next question is by Jenna. I was wondering if ThimbleCon was cut down from the original idea. As I recall, there were discussions in the podcast of Dolores dressing up to attend and a few other concepts that didn't make it into the final game. I think the only thing that was cut out was the thing about Dolores dressing up. I can't remember. Can you guys remember anything else that was cut from ThimbleCon? You know, we, we might have had some stuff that had more to do with conventions and comics and stuff, but overall... Yeah, overall, Those I think are more that it was pretty much the things. way we envisioned it. I think that we talked at once about having Dolores having like you know half a dozen different costumes or a bunch, right. and every time you switch to her, you should be wearing something in different cosplay. Yeah, I think what we were talking about was you know you were in the hotel and you'd walk through the door and Dolores would be dressed normal, and when mm -hmm. we cut to ThimbleCon, she would just be in her costume. Mm -hmm. It's like she did this magical cosplay switch. Uh, just walking through the door. But I think that was just a workload issue because, you know, costumes with, you know, this hand-drawn animation is like you really have to redraw all of Dolores with all the different costumes. So I think that was just cut from a, from a workload issue. And, that I mean, there was a puzzle where she had to go find a costume initially, and I think we cut that just because it, it seemed too cumbersome. You know, there was enough lead-up to getting into ThimbleCon and getting in there was important enough that... You know, we cut that because it just felt like it would it would drag it would drag the puzzle too much, so we cut it. All right, cranky old gamer, I missed the Kickstarter. Anyway, you'll have the boxed collector's edition in merch later on. Question mark. And the answer is yes, we will. I think it's in our fac, and uh, we do plan to have that for sale. The only difference is, unlike the Kickstarter one, it's not going to be signed. But I believe that. You know, you could probably hunt Ron down at some uh, event he's at and get him to sign it. He'll do it for like 20 bucks or something like that. Yeah, I don't know when the box is going to be available for sale. I mean, we're still we're still kind of working on that. And um, someone actually asked, and I didn't pull this comment out. I guess I forgot it. But someone asked whether the cover of the box was going to be pixelated or whether the cover of the box was going to be you know, a really nice painting. And yeah, and, and Ken Macklin, the guy who did the Maniac Mansion box, he's going to be painting the cover of the Thimbleweed Park box. So our goal with that box is to make it a very, you know, uh, authentic, you know, 1980s, 90s Lucasfilm style box. So it'll have a nice painted cover and all those other things. Is it, it going to have that special Lucasfilm games paper on the side? You know, the uh, Marvel kind of Oh, uh, maybe not. It might. It may, it may not have that. I still remember when we were doing Monkey Island, driving into San Francisco and going to this paper store, and spending all this time um, with. I think Doug Glenn was there. Uh -huh. You might have been there too, Gary. Uh, just just pulling paper, trying to find that paper that went on the Monkey Island box. 
was was like before the internet where you could just pull up a Google image search and find the paper. We actually had to physically go to a store to find the paper. All right, Mike K wants to know, how did the idea of the sheriff corner and hotel manager speech tick come about? Was that something the voice actor ad-libbed or was that specifically written into the script arena? Uh, yeah, those were all written into the script. You know, the voice, the voice actor didn't um, didn't do that. And I don't know how I really came up with that. I think David had written like a first pass of the sheriff, that initial dialogue with the sheriff, and then I was going in writing the final pass, and I was just trying to figure out something that kind of made him unique. Um, and then the idea of having the coroner, you know, do the uh, do his, you know, the who thing. That that kind of came later. I mean, that I that was really figured out after the Areno. It's like the whole thing didn't come as an entire package. I did the Areno, and then I thought, oh, the the coroner shouldn't shouldn't do Areno. He should do this other one. And what is and doesn't the um, hotel manager do something as well? What is he? A boo, a boo, a who, and Areno. He does a and boo. And you just came up with those like out of you know whole cloth kind of thing. Uh, I, well, I did the Areno and the Abu and the Ahu, and I think when Jen did the hotel manager, she did the Abu. Is that right, or did you do now, the Abu, I think, David? I think I remember asking you. So what? So what's his tick? And you said Abu. Oh, okay. And I think I added it, and then I think it got added later. Oh, okay. So you were the one that did that. Yeah. All right. What was yours? They, they all three came from you. All right, Jeff King wants to know, I'm curious where people got stuck when playing through the game. I recently finished it, and the longest time I was stuck was when I didn't know how to use the toxic waste in the puddle. It took me a few days to get past that. That's definitely one of the, the hardest. I think the, the whole chain of... and It's more like people say, I, I don't know where to charge the battery. And they, that was really the problem. And I think... Part of the problem was they didn't know that there was a puzzle to be solved because they had already found maybe possibly two ways to use the forest before that. Um, you know, just wandering through to get the, the thimbleberries, and also if they found the Easter egg um, with the navigator head, um, and they figured that was it. So they never even tried to f- solve it as a, as a puzzle to get through with the puddle. Yeah, I think that I think that was one thing that I didn't quite realize was that most people would have gotten into the forest with a navigator head. I kind of figured that would, you know, be more of a um more of a hidden a hidden easter egg. And and maybe it could be the difference between whether you were a Monkey Island fan or not. Like a lot of players, you know, who didn't play Monkey Island you know, may not have gotten through the forest with a navigator's head, but it does seem like people getting through the forest with a navigator head, as you said, it was kind of distracting to the, you know, whether the puzzle needed to be solved. Right. So people figured there must be another, since there were two things they already figured out with the, the forest, they were just trying to brute force it and right. come up with a, a third way without realizing that there was actually a puzzle. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good example of one of those puzzles that, you know, I, I read comments on Twitter and on, you know, comment sections and stuff. And, you know, it's, I don't know if it's evenly split, but there's certainly a lot of people who are like, oh man, that was a great puzzle. I was really stuck on it. And then I had that aha moment and I knew how to solve it. And then there are other people that are just angry and furious about that puzzle, you know, that they think it's unfair. 
And, and I, you know, I, I think I, I always kind of like that, right? I like when a bunch of people think something is, you know, super cool and clever and another group of people think it was horrible and unfair because that, to me, that kind of says there's this really nice, you know, give and take with the thing going on. And I think that puzzle is, is definitely one of those. I think the other puzzle that messes people up or that I, that I've read them. If I just kind of look at the hard ones, I think it's getting the tools from sexy Riker and getting the wrench. It's like, mm -hmm. I think those, those are the three puzzles that most people get stuck on. Right. Patrick Paquette asks, do you have an ETA for the uncensored uh, ransom dialogue and for the arcade? We don't, have an ETA for those yet. Um, you know, we're still trying, there's a bunch of other stuff we're trying to get down like the iOS, iOS ports and other ports. And so we really haven't jumped into those. And probably by the time you listen to this podcast, we'll have released the Russian version, which I think is what we're really focusing on right now. So I think as soon as the Russian version is out the door and then that, and that, and the patch that goes with it is out the door, then we'll probably start in on the arcades. The ransom stuff is, pretty trivial i mean that'll take me about a day to do so i'm not too worried about that but um and i imagine the ransom stuff will probably go out at the same time that the arcade patch is but we don't really have an eta for that next nicholas rivas asked what did you realize about the game only after you read the reviews yeah that's i mean that's always interesting right i mean i think every game i've done you know you you realize this thing that people picked up on that you didn't you didn't quite realize before so for you guys what what was the thing what was what was like the one thing that you you realized after reading reviews that you didn't quite expect um hmm. i was gonna say i didn't i didn't expect people to get so so hung up on all the on the um you know references to the fourth walling and other games but... yeah that's well that's what i was going to say yeah you know the the huge very variance in responses to the end jokes i think if i look at the reviews that was probably like the single most negative thing you know consistent most negative thing that i saw in reviews is that people thought you know that there were there were way too many you know in jokes but it's also one of the the things that i think the backers at least thought was one of the best parts of the game yeah yeah it's difficult and and the other thing about it is that I read several reviews where the reviewer themselves weren't bothered by it, but they were concerned other people would be bothered by it. And that always bugs me when, when, you know, people are like, well, I, I don't really care about this, but I think other people will care about this. Cause I, I always feel that's a little unfair to do in reviews, right? I mean, either you care about it or you don't care about it. Um, and, and there were a fair amount of reviews that that was the case, but, but I think that is, I mean, that would be my choice, too, of the, you know, of the one thing that um, that I was surprised, the reaction. I also think it was, you know, as as we were building the game, we were just having so much fun, right? I mean, we were, you know, we were kind of reliving, you know, this, this wonderful period in our lives. And, and I think we just kind of kept throwing this stuff in because we thought it was really fun and funny and, and didn't really think about the the bulk of it. And during all of our playtest sessions, it never came up. You know, nobody ever complained or commented or anything about the amount of amount of those references in the game. So I think that was why it was surprising to me. 
I think from in my case, I I remember feeling like I was doing this for you guys also. I mean, I, the the idea of putting in something as a like a little Easter egg or something, and then having Ron stumble across it later on when he was playing, and and imagining him laughing, right? And and so you know, part of it was just trying to get each of us you know to respond to these, and and also also in my mind, you know, when I do a game, I think I I have an audience in mind. And I'm writing for that audience, and my, you know, the people who hired us to do the game really are the backers, and that's who I was doing the game for. Yeah, I, I just wanted to do a game that Noah Falstein and Chip Morningstar would laugh at. Well, if they each want to pony up a half a million dollars, I'd be, I'd be happy to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to do a, a play test with Noah. And that was probably the most fun because he he got every subtle reference, of course, and was you know laughing out loud through most of it. So um, hey, Noah. <laughs> but when when I knew that there would be a huge um, difference of opinion would be the ending. I knew some people would love it and some people wouldn't. Yeah, so that's why that wasn't surprising to me. Right. It's like I knew the ending was going to create some controversy and. That wasn't a big deal. It was. It was really more all. It was really the end jokes, that that kind of caught me a little bit surprised by surprise. And I think looking back on it, um, we probably did do a little too much of that of that kind of stuff. But I don't know that I necessarily regret it. But it is probably the number one complaint. I mean, the fourth walling is hard, right? And I think I think the other thing about the fourth walling is. You know, people who are reviewing the game or the playing the game, they get to this point, they go, oh, too much fourth walling. And it's not really until they get to the end that they realize, oh, oh, that was all there for a reason. And so that that's that to me is why I don't I don't pay as much attention to the fourth walling. And I also just love fourth walling. I mean, you either like Deadpool or Blazing Saddles or you don't. You know what I mean? It's kind of like. Right. Yeah. Well, to be to be honest, if you want well, to if you keep this, um, to be honest, the when we were doing the fourth walling in the game, I don't think you had this ending in mind. The well, the first few, the first couple of things that I did, I did, I did not. But much, much later, well, not much later. I mean, it wasn't that much later that I did kind of understand where that ending was going. Mm-hmm. Like the the pigeon sisters dialogue, um, I'd wrote that really early, and the ending hadn't fully formated, um, formulated at that time. Um, and a couple of lines the sheriff says, you know, that was true. But almost everything after that, it's like I kind of knew where the ending was going. I didn't know exactly how the ending was going to manifest itself, but I, I kind of, I kind of knew that what the ending was, just not how it was going to actually play out. The other, the other piece which surprised me was um, the response to the characters not being able to talk to each other. Yeah, well, that was. I guess I wasn't totally surprised by that because you know it is something that we had talked about and that we had actually implemented you know i I had done that first pass of implementing the code where the characters can talk to each other and i just abandoned it because it was just turning into a giant wormhole you know or sinkhole or (laughs) whatever kind of hole you want to call it (laughs) it was a hole let's just leave it at that and so I just kind of abandoned it. And, you know, some of the testers and stuff had kind of brought it up as an issue. And, you know, when I abandoned it, they were like, ooh, I don't, you know, I really hate to see this leave. And I think I do regret that. I think I think we should have 
gone back and said, okay, let's figure out how to make this work. But, you know, characters talking to each other is, it's, it's a really, really difficult thing. You know, it's like, and there are games, like I was playing this game on the Xbox not too long ago. I think it was called Oxenfree. And, you know, it has a really good model of these characters being able to talk to each other. But that's their entire game. You know, they, they, they spent, you know, the majority of their, you know, kind of narrative development on that one feature and making sure they're worked incredibly well. And it really isn't our game, right? It's just, it's this one little add-on thing. And my big fear with the talking to characters at the time that I was originally doing it was that we would just do a half-assed job of it. And it just, it felt, it felt to me that it was, since this wasn't our game, it wasn't a game about going around talking to the other playable characters that it just felt to me that it was better to not do it rather than doing a half-assed job of it. And that's kind of, I think the decision that, that I came to with that. And, and kind of related to that for me was, was the feedback um, on the idea that maybe, you know, why are some of these characters actually willing to work with each other and share items and give things to each other. And it, when we, when I was coding, you know, it was kind of like, okay, well, this is adventure game logic and you know we're you're the you're in charge really it's your mind who's doing all this stuff you don't have to really worry about that but for some people that really got in the way for them staying in the story yeah that 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 was surprising to me that was surprising to me because there're just so many things in adventure games i mean all the way back to you know monkey island and whatnot where characters are doing things that you know, are magical in some reason, only because they're being controlled by this other, you know, sentient being in the upper world. And I don't know that, I don't know that there's a good solution to it. I mean, I think from a story standpoint, there are probably some, there probably are really just like a couple of lines we could have added to the story. Um, and I think Ransom's the only real problem. You know, Dolores is such a nice person. You do, you don't you don't question why Dolores is helping people out, but I think people did question why Ransom was helping. And but I think that could could have been solved by just a couple of well placed lines of dialogue. But I mean, one of the things that I had read in the in the blog comments was you know somebody somebody didn't want like like they were upset that Ray would go do something when only you know Ray as it had the conversation you know with. Um, you know, Madame Morena, for example, but Ray was more than happy to go pick up the mushrooms. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, that if we had fixed that, that would just become frustrating, right? Because you as a player understand these goals that need to be accomplished. And if characters were just refusing to do things just because they had not talked to the person when you and the player had talked to the person and knew what to do, I think that would just become amazingly frustrating. So that is something that I, I would not fix under any circumstances. I mean, one other thing, you know, on sort of just purely a mechanical level, it's kind of like Maniac Mansion. And in Maniac Mansion, you these five different characters. I think the only thing that was different is at the beginning of the Maniac Mansion, we say these characters are friends. Right. That's the only difference. That I They're friends, think and they also had a common goal, which was to rescue Sandy. Yeah, but relatively speaking, in terms of the mechanics of how that worked and the mechanics of how this works, it's pretty much the same thing. Right. Well, well it, it is, it is, except there is that shared goal. I mean, all those people were going to go in to rescue Sandy, where in Thimbleweed Park, 
I guess you understand that Ray and Reyes have the same goals, but you know because there's Ransom and Franklin and Dolores, you don't you don't totally understand you know that they have the same goals. But, but we 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 actually set it up so they each had their own specific goal right. that they were trying to accomplish. And and in the case of, they all had to do that in the same location. So get, getting into the factory became a common goal, but the actual personal goals were different. Um, and we, I remember having this during one of our brainstorming sessions where we spent some time talking about this, like how, you know, how is it that Reyes knows what Ray wants to get done and why does it get added to his notebook in terms of a to-do list when she was the one who got the information. And so we, you know, we kind of went back and forth on that a bit and pretty quickly decided that it was, you know, that there was this, they, they knew through the player. Um, what the what the thing was to do? Yeah, because I think it would be very frustrating, you know, if only if only Ray had it in her notebook and Reyes didn't have it in her notebook, you know, in his notebook. I think that would just be really frustrating. And then if Reyes solved it, if he what if it was in Reyes' notebook and Reyes picked up the mushrooms, then who who's checkbox yeah, who did check? get checked off? Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's just there's a whole bunch of weird cases with this where it just it just makes it simpler to say you know what it's just it's shared knowledge and it's just one of those things that you deal with in an adventure game. I mean, it is one of the things that doing multiplayer you know, not multiplayer, but a game where there are multiple characters to switch, it just makes it a lot harder. You know, in, in, in Monkey Island, I mean, it was only Guybrush that ever knew anything, so you didn't you didn't have to worry about why somebody was doing something. But, you know, there's, there's still, I mean, even in Monkey Island and all those games, you know, p- people were doing things that didn't quite seem logical, that only seemed logical to the player, because they had seen a piece of information in the world, and even though the player didn't necessarily know about that but i don't think it's a line right it's just this big messy gray area you just kind of have to pick how far you're going to go in the line and, and, and there's i remember through pretty much all of our games there was this thread of you know you as the player asking these characters to do something and they could refuse because it wasn't in their character um and they just wouldn't do it um and they may tell you i'm not going to do that and so it kind of the way I always envision these is that you're you're kind of playing this as in a partnership with these with these actors on the screen and you're giving them suggestions about what to do and they could refuse or agree to do it. So they and they sometimes would tell you that directly. Yeah, I think you just have to be careful with that because if the characters are refusing to do things too much it could be frustrating for the player. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think you just have to choose very carefully. Like if they can't, if they say they won't do something, it needs to become very clear to the player why they won't do it, right? The, just their their own personal feelings don't really matter, right? There there needs to be some puzzle reason. You have to be able to look at it and and go, oh, okay, well I see that why they won't do this, and I see what I can do about it. Other than default lines. You know, where people are just saying, I can't do that, or I don't want to do that. I mean, those are kind of default responses. Okay, we're moving on to Kristen's question. Can you give us any hints about the kidnapping scene and what it meant? How much of this uh, backstory exists, and will it be kept a secret? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's all done for a reason, right? I mean, everything 
you know, as I read through the blog and I read through, you know, Steam comments and stuff, it's like, you know, people are throwing out all these story flaws with the game. And I don't think they're story flaws, right? I mean, it was all done on a reason and a, and a purpose. And, and I think it's, I mean, it's not so much a secret, but it's just that, you know, you need, you need to kind of look at, it's like I look at a lot of the stuff that people are calling story flaws, and I think I think people need to step back and look at this stuff more as metaphors for things. And I think it makes a lot more sense when when you kind of do that a little bit. So you know, I don't I don't think we're ever going to reveal the meaning to these scenes because I don't know that some of these scenes actually have concrete meanings. I think people really want hard answers. They want to know, well, exactly what happened with this scene. And a lot of times they don't really have hard answers. They just, they just have interesting metaphorical answers to things. My favorite answer for, for the second kidnapping is that, you know, if you, if you leave the actor alone, like Ray is, you haven't touched him for a while. He just gets really bored and goes, takes a nap on the corner's <laughs> table. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, all, all those things exist. And I mean, there are lots of weird little hints and clues and stuff, but, but I think if you, you know, I think like, you know, if you look at like, you know, weird pieces of literature and stuff, I think if you, if you take everything too literally, it's not going to make sense. So I think for anybody who wants to understand the meaning for all these things, uh, the only the only thing I would say is step back a little bit. You know, s- stop looking for for really pat answers and stop looking for these very physical answers to stuff and and look at the things that happen. You know, m- more you know as metaphors for things. And I th- and I, then I think it'll probably start to make more sense for people. All right, Crazy Canuck asks, how is the iOS version coming along? I will be honest, longtime fan holding out because I want it for the iPad. Uh, those two versions, um, the iOS and the Android, are actually coming along really well. I mean, it's totally playable on the iPhone. Uh, I did a little bit of work on it, and then I pulled back on that you know, to get the next patch done. But as soon as the patch comes down with the Russian and stuff, which which should hopefully be out on Monday, I'm going to jump back into the um, the iPhone and the iPad stuff full bore. There's there really are just a couple of UI things that I want to do, um, but but not a whole lot. So I don't want I don't want to give a date yet, but but I don't think it'll be long. I got to play a little bit on my iPad, and it's really nice. Yeah, there there was that crash that you got, and somebody else was playing the game. Um, I think Emily was playing it on her iPad, and it crashed. Mm. And I looked at those crashes, and I think what those crashes are is actually your device uh, wanted to go to sleep. Mm. Because the way the way a lot of games work, I remember we had this issue with Scurvy Scallywags, because, because we're not really going through the the whole operating system to do the touches in the right way, the game doesn't actually know that you're interacting with the device. And so what happens is it just, it gets to this point that says, Oh, well the user hasn't done anything with the phone or the iPad. I think I'll put it to sleep. And so I think both of these crashes were actually that, Um, but there's a little flag that we can set, which means don't go to sleep while we're running so we just need to set that and i think those crashes will go away but those are the only two crashes that i've seen so i think that's that's probably good news for the mobile versions all right big red button asks the likelihood of possible other ports ps4 switch 
would be interesting as well. And also a lot of people have asked about Play Anywhere on the Xbox and Windows 10. Um, we're looking at a lot of different port stuff. We, we have no firm deals in place or uh, things to announce, but as soon as we do, we will we will certainly do that. The Play Anywhere stuff is definitely coming. I imagine that will be done probably next week because we're very very close to getting that to getting that done. There, I mean, there's there are some weird, you know, chain of 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 miscommunications where the people assumed that we were deep in the middle of a PS4 port, and that it was due three months after the game launched. Yeah, I think that was that that one interview that I had done where they had asked about you know uh, about the play, the PlayStation port and I think my response was you know hey we would love to we would love to do it on the PS4 we'd love to have it everywhere we can and that suddenly turned into we're doing a PS4 port or the assumption that because we couldn't launch a PS4 before 3 months that we would yeah. have one in 3 months yeah so anyway we we've made no announcements on that stuff at all and as soon as we do you will know I think porting to other consoles it's it's a lot harder than say you know porting you know onto Steam or Agog or even the Mac App Store and iOS because you know the three big console manufacturers you know Microsoft and um, you know Sony and Nintendo you can't just be on their platforms right you can't just go hey I'm gonna do a Switch port and start programming on the Switch. I mean, if you want to be on the Switch, you have to present all this information to them and that they have to like your game and they have to prove your game. And then there's all this stuff about having to get dev kits. And it's just it's just not as easy as just deciding, you know, hey, we'll be on the Switch, you know. And also, I mean, these, these ports cost money, right? It's not free to do a PlayStation port of something, right? I mean, that costs a lot of money to go out and do that. So, you know, we just have to be very careful about you know what things we decide to do and and what things we're allowed to do and and all this all this other stuff all right paul how much of the reviews and online comments do you try to read about the game all of it some of it or none of it uh i certainly read all of it <laughs> yeah i read very little of it i think i think it's one of those things that i've kind of learned you know over the years i mean there's that whole thing don't read the comments and i i think i'm i'm very much like that I, I tend to read reviews, right? When people review the game, I will I'll read those. Um, I don't read comments that are on, you know, websites except our own blog. I read all those. But, you know, things like the Steam forums and all these other countless other forums about the game, I just, I, I don't I don't really read those. And probably in between that, I have this routine now where I, I scan all Twitter references for Thimbleweed Park and, you know, like, couple times a day and so i look at those and and from that i get some of the reviews and i also get notifications on the mention of the game and for reviews if it's a really positive review i read it because i love because it's fun <laughs> if it's a negative review i might skim it and get the the last paragraph and say this guy doesn't know what he's talking about <laughs> disregard it. too many in jokes the negative ones are often too frustrating or too painful um depending on on your point of view. Um, especially if the negative one just says like this guy you say starts off saying, I hate adventure games and here's another adventure game and I hate this one too and and here's why. And yeah, those those are frustrating reviews. It's like why why bother yeah, why, why why are you reviewing it? Or the other reviews that are frustrating for me that I read is when people just wanted the game to be something else. And 
and it's not it's not like they you know backed the Kickstarter and we misled them and they wanted to be something else. It's it's like somebody go a movie reviewer going and you know watching a really good romantic comedy and then bitching that there weren't more car chases in it. You know, it's 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 that kind of stuff that's frustrating. It's like, well, I mean, kind of understand the genre, right? If I'm if I'm going to review a first-person shooters type game, I'm not going to get upset by the lack of puzzles. And I I read a couple of reviews where where that that was happening, and that really frustrated me with those kind of reviews. But I, I think the reason I don't read the comments is it's it's not about feedback. You know, feedback's really important and it's good. It's just that I I find most of the comments are just people bitching about stuff and I don't I don't find that kind of um those kind of comments particularly useful to me you know there's a difference between you know people bitching about something and people giving you feedback about something and and as soon as people start bitching I just tune out it's like I, I have no interest in what you're saying anymore there, it's interesting I, I also have been um I kind of missed the initial rush of steam feedback because I was too busy doing other stuff but then I I started doing that pretty much daily and um, there's some discussions which I just don't bother, like the ones that don't like the ending. It's just like let them work it out among them, amongst themselves because there's people with both both, point, both points of view on that. Um, but often people saying there's a bug in your game, you can't do get past a certain point. And and um, for example, people thinking they're stuck in the pillowtron area, and not you know assuming now that it's a bug instead of their lack of actual exploration. Yeah, we get a lot of stuff like that on support. You know, we get a lot of people that email support to inform us of a bug that's actually just they haven't solved the puzzle. Yeah, early on there it was a question because there were a couple of significant problems that we fixed within the first few days. Right, the first patch, yeah. Yeah, um, and after that people are assuming that maybe when they get stuck that it might be a bug. I don't think they're, I'm not aware of any major bugs at this point that would keep someone from getting through. I think that's all been corrected. Yeah, I, I haven't seen any any bugs that aren't just minor, you know, little aesthetic issues at this point. Or people people getting stuck at the circus as they're misreading the hints about how to unlock the safe. We also get emails to support because people are using a hard mode walkthrough to play the game in casual mode. Mm. And then they get really confused because these things don't exist because they're only in hard mode and they're in casual and and they'll report them as bugs. Um we actually get a you know a fair amount of people who email support because they didn't do the scene where they walked into the alley and got knocked out and that's totally optional and they didn't do that and now they wonder whether they've screwed their game over because there is a point in the game where you can no longer walk in the alley and get knocked out. I think it's when you get the map, isn't it? Right. Yeah, so once you get the map, that scene will no longer happen, and so people will come sometimes, you know, email and go, oh, you know, I'm in this part of the game, and I never got knocked out. Does this mean I've, you know, I've I've screwed my game over with with stuff? So we, you know, we do get stuff like that in support as well. Those are easy answers, though. So yeah, th those, so those, those should those should go. Maybe those should go on the fact, like or the support page. Yeah, I find that people just don't read that stuff. You know, I mean, even the even the podcast questions, there were so many of these podcast questions that were just answered in the fact. So, you know, I think people just don't, they just don't read, they don't read the fact or they don't know about the existence of the fact or, you know, or, or whatever.
And I don't know where people are getting our support email from. You know, I don't know that they're getting it off the website's page or they're just guessing or um, I think it's on the Steam page as well. So I, I don't necessarily know that, you know, there is, they would be funneled into the fact anyway. Well, I, I still love reading positive reviews um, <laughs> and, and then, um, you know, share them with everyone else and, and retweet them and, that's that's really nice, especially especially when there's a different take on it, where some or someone gets some point that we were trying to make with a game in the game with a puzzle or whatever, and they're just the first person I've actually read who vocalized it in the way that we meant it. Damn. Yeah, I like reading the negative reviews when they're well thought out. Mm -hmm. You know, I like reading negative reviews where somebody has really taken the time to analyze something, and you know, it's like you can read it. I just don't like the negative reviews when. Like there was some negative view that went up um, right after launch. It's like I just read this and I went, "Wow, did I did I like personally run over your dog or something?" <laughs> because it was just it was so vindictive that there's there's a point where you just stop paying attention to this person because clearly they have some other issue and they're taking it out on your game, you know. And, and I think that's true of movie reviewers or book reviewers or anything. It's like you know, you, your game or your book was the last straw in this issue that they have. And so, you know, your thing gets dumped on by this person. And th those are hard. Those are hard to read sometimes. I don't like computers. Yeah. <laughs> Why is Thimbleweed Park on a computer? This game sucks. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, sometimes you can pick up the attitude right away. They're more, sometimes the reviewer is more intent on having funny, snarky responses than they are in kind of a even handed review. Right. Yeah. And sometimes if you read the, com that's when I like to read the comments under the review, because often you get a lot of pushback oh, um, from the, from the people who actually yeah. play. So, you know, why are you saying that here? You're, you're nuts. And, and right. why, if you hate adventure games, then why are you reviewing why this? Why are you reviewing this? Yeah. All right. Next question is from white Rekogis. That ending period when did you come up with the idea? Was it planned from the beginning or did the idea come up later? Um, well, the ending wasn't, wasn't planned from the very beginning. It wasn't, it wasn't too far into the game when I kind of had the idea of where the story was going, but the actual manifestation of the ending was, I think it was probably July, last July that that really all started to formulate in my head. It's like, I, you know, again, I, I, I kind of knew from a story standpoint where it was going, but I didn't know how it was all going to play out in terms of puzzles and locations. The idea of going into the wireframe world, that was something that we had talked about from almost the beginning of the project. Um, but it was just going to be an Easter egg. You know, there would be this weird thing you could do, and then you could go walk around the wireframe world. But then as the ending uh, you know, started to coalesce. I, you know, I, I, I kind of had the idea. Oh, we should really let you walk through the wireframe world because that, that to me really kind of grounds everything that we're talking about. You know, it it really you know put focus on the fact that this was just a game because you were really walking through all the all the wireframe art. Next question is from Elvis Ish. The game is amazing, really well thought out puzzles and really funny. Uh, I know there was two. There were two main writers, Ron and Lauren, and additional writers, David and Jen. Do you remember which key scenes, puzzles, cutscenes, or game sections were written by who? 
Uh, I think we could probably figure it out. Well, I, I think that most of the dialogues were Ron and Lauren. Probably Lauren did a lot of them. The ones, the ones where you actually go up and talk to somebody and you get choices. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, those. I, I mean, I did most of the first drafts of the dialogues, and then, then what I would do is I would do the very first draft, and and sometimes not even with real writing. It was just, it was just, you know, talk about this, you know, talk about that. Sandy mentions this, then those would go to Lauren, and then she would kind of fill them all out. Um, I know that Ron did most of the end game section um from the right. time you get to for all the chuck dialogue and from the time you get to into the pillotron to, through to the very end it was all ron's right um jen jen did and most of the writing that i did and jen did were probably in game type um response writing so like using an object with an object and and the the response you get when you do things yeah that was all probably 90 percent you know, you and Jen. Right. I don't think I wrote very much of that at all. And and Jen did did all of that for the hotel and for the sewers, and I did it for the rest. And um, and then there are a couple of cutscenes where I would do a pass, and then Ron would come in and, and do an edit on it. Um, I th you know things like I think the postman, the postal worker getting the tape was mine, and. An initial dialogue with Ray and Reyes um, through the through the sewer, great, and that got you know simplified because it was way uh, way overrode. That was my first one, and that got simplified by a lot of that was was my stuff. Yeah, I think Lauren did the rewrite of that. Yeah, um, I just went on. I got way too complex. I was having fun learning it, but it was just too much. <laughs> um, it's a learning experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is a problem with the dialogue sometimes is is you just you really get caught up in them because they can be really fun to write. And then you just realize they're they're just kind of meandering off in this territory they really shouldn't go into. Right. But like simple cutscenes, like, you know, if you try to leave leave the nickel um with with the map and things like the dialogues that happen there and and when you use something with something and those things. So um I know Ron Ron, you did all the dialogue when you talked to the Tron machines, right? Yeah. So it was it was mixed up, and there and and at some point it kind of blended together because you know we'd be editing each other's stuff and and doing changes, and so it's you know the, you could probably if you ask who did this one, we could probably tell you at least who touched it. Yeah, and I think Lauren wrote most of Ransom's dialogue. Oh, his dial definitely yeah. his dialogues. I yeah, think his dialogues, I, and yeah. I and I think you wrote the initial um, transitions into the flashbacks. Right. Yeah, I did those. And you also wrote the dialogues. You know, the, like the Act Two overviews. Right. Those transition dialogues. And the, yeah. And and then the the meeting on the Vista um, with Rian Reyes. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I think I think everybody touches everything at some point. I think it's I think it's why it's nice, you know, for you know narrative games like this, if you're having, you know, scripters, scripter type programmers, you know, like what David and Jen did, if there's this really nice, good foundation of being able to write. Um, because, you know, if you didn't have that, then they would be coding stuff and there would just be all this like temp dialogue everywhere, you know, that then a writer has to go through and it's really nice if if people can really you know, do a lot of that themselves.
Oh, I think there was one that was funny where, where when the sheriff finally arrests Willie, I did the cut scene and then um, did a kind of a framework of the interrogation dialogue and, you know, the good cop, bad cop stuff. Right. And I, I think I just basically, I think I did the thing where as soon as Willie realizes what you're doing, that he caves. Right. And you kept that. <laughs> yeah, because I, I had a much more elaborate idea. You know, where, where Ray and Reyes would have this really elaborate conversation with Willie that was, you know, like watching a scene out of Law and Order or something. And then I think you just stubbed in the dialogue, you know, where, where somebody says, you know, oh, you're going to be a good cop. I'll be a bad cop. And they go and they just say that. Right. I think that was the thing. You just had them go up to Willie and say, <laughs> I'm good cop. I'm bad cop. <laughs> And I thought that was really funny, and it was it was I think it was a lot simpler, and it was a lot, uh, you know, more to the point than the original thing that I had conceived. So. And then, and then your your bit where he starts, um, confessing to every crime that happened up to that point, which I think yeah. was hilarious. That's hilarious. I think that was like a group brainstorming. Yeah, thing. I did. I I had written like maybe ten of the things, and then I I posted something on Slack, and then like everybody on Slack chimed in, and we got that. That big list of things <laughs> that Willie confesses to. Next question is from Claudio Clemens. Are you all happy with the resulting game? Do you regret having having done something or having not done something too much? As I can say for myself, the game actually really well catches the charm of Maniac Mansion being much more beautiful than the good old days. I don't know that I have a whole lot of regrets. You know, I look back at the game now and it's like, I mean, is there anything? I, I, like we said earlier in the podcast, you know, I wish I had really had the time to deal with the characters talking to characters. Um, you know, it's, I spent weeks on that and just kind of abandoned it and, you know, maybe spending another couple of weeks. I don't know that we had the time, but I think that's probably the one area that I, that I regret not being able to, to really get right. I mean, I'm certainly happy with the end result. I think it's uh, it came out certainly, I'm going to say, as good or if not better than what I imagined when we started, if that makes sense. So I certainly um, am very happy with the end result of the game, you know, and um, I also have no regrets about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm me too. I'm totally pleased. I think the only thing that we might have done too much, which we mentioned earlier, were the end jokes for, for a specific audience. All right, next question. Darkstorm, why did you make the decision not to be able to look at people? I, you know, it, it kind of, this one area that I do regret, I wish I would put, I wish I would have put the look at back in for the people. The reason that it got removed was, and this, this goes really all the way back to, you know, to Monkey Island and some of the decisions we made then is, it's very problematic to start being able to use the full verb set on actors. And it's just one of those things where it, to me, it's clear if you just don't allow any of that stuff, because then you don't have to pick this weird line that, you know, can you, can you do, you know, open and close and pick up and all these other stuff on people that just didn't really make a lot of sense. Right. You can, you can try to open an inanimate object and it's okay if the player just says something. But when you start, when you start pushing these verbs onto people, you, as a player, you start to respect responses, not from the character 
who's trying to do the verb, but you also start respecting expecting responses from the characters who the verb is being operated on. And it just it just creates this this um, very complex web of stuff if you start doing that. So what we had decided to do, and again, you know, all the way back to the early games, is just not allow it, right? So there's just not not really a gray area, except in a couple of cases where it made perfect puzzle sense or was particularly funny. Um, well, in the in the case of um, both the mime and Willie in the very opening scene, right? There, the way we we didn't have access to those verbs as they were actors, so I I put a second object in the in their same location, which have the other verbs. So right. I push. Yeah, or, so that or, was kind of kind of clutched up. Right. But I think the look at is different. I think the look at is one of those things that it's a passive thing to do. It's not an active thing. And I do think we should have had look ats for all the actors. Mm-hmm. Um, that is definitely something I wish. There, there's still done. code in there for for some of that. I don't think the system will quite understand it. Does, it doesn't though. understand it, but there I saw there's some lines that are. Yeah, there are there. some verb look ats for people. I wonder if they, and those lines got recorded or not. If they had numbers, they actually would have got recorded. Yeah. But yeah. I don't think we did it for enough to be able to turn it back on. Mm-hmm. We'd have to go back into the studio to be able to turn on the look ats for people. This is one of the, you know one of the downsides to doing recordings, is you know you can't just go oh well we should let's just quickly put in look ats for people because we can't really do that anymore without incurring a, a pretty large cost. All right, Christian asks, what happened to the higher backer levels? Which characters or items are based on the backers? Well, there, um, since I, since I, I think I, I don't know if I drew all of them, but I drew most of them. There um, are three um, uh, actors in the game that are based on the um, backers. There is the Mr. El Palo, who is the bank manager. And then there's two characters at ThimbleCon, which are Ken Thien and Ken Jones. Thien. Did I say that right? I think it's Ken Okay, Thien. Ken Thien and, and Ken Jones, who both man tables at um, ThimbleCon. And then there are about 16, I believe, backer items, which I don't know if I want to go through and list them. Uh, I don't know if we actually say they're backer items in the game. Do we say that or not? Well, yeah, we do. We do in, in the fact that if people read the descriptions or read the names of the items they usually have a person's name attached to it and so that's kind of the way you know i think about half of them you know we kind of integrated into the game like the the hot sauce you know the the math trophy that you use to pour the the math trophy that you use to pour radioactive the waste. radioactive fluid you know that's a backer item um the hot sauce that you used to light the fire is a backer item the floppy disk floppy disks yeah so i mean we we tried as much as we could with the backer items to integrate them into the game and if we couldn't integrate them into the game we at least tried to do a really nice animation like you know drinking the tea or the eye drops i mean those are both backer items the snake in the box the snake in a box yeah the the cream the yeah cream. yeah you're right and the, the red the red button yeah the... <laughs> <laughs> it has a use in the game <laughs> um and this, I think the there is one that didn't have any use. There are a few that didn't have any use. So like the the tuna can, um the the cat o nine tails, cat five oh nine tails. Um there are a few like that that, that really weren't. Yeah, we just we just couldn't find 
we just couldn't find good puzzles for those things. I mean, the, the idea was to have them all useful, if possible. Yeah, yeah, we tried. I don't know. I don't know if I was going to do this again. I don't know that I would do the backer items the same way, just because of that integrating in the game. You know, like I think someone else's comment, which we might get to later, was just why are there so many red herrings in the game? And I think some of those red herrings just come from the backer items. And I think if, had we just had we not done the backer items, then I think you you might not have had as many red red herrings in the game. I think the only place other than backer items where there were red herrings was probably on the highway, where where you had a few things you pick up, like right. the Atari, Atari cartridge. Atari cartridge was that a backer uh, no. item that wasn't? And right. yeah, no, that was say it. Yeah, it was just it was just Doug Crockford's yeah, yeah, heads I, was the backer item. I mean, item. even things right. like the um, plastic rings from the sodas. Later, we thought, oh, the, you know, something terrible should happen when you give these to the pigeons, you know, or whatever. So we never really right. came. <laughs> yeah, I think we yeah. we thought of that too late. We'd already. Done I would have liked to do an animation but... of like a pigeon with one of those things around their neck, squawking and gr pulling at it. You know what I mean? <laughs> next time <laughs> right michael my has a question which bug gave you the worst headache or nightmares and has it has it anything to do with concurrency or some other issue well my my code is all completely bug free so i really can't <laughs> i really can't can't answer this well most of the bugs are scripting related that the, the ones that gave headaches i think and and I know that the two that come to mind for me are the elevator, which I knew was going to be a problem when I first did the first pass, and then Jen took it over and and had. And I and I and I remember telling both you and Jen, this elevator is going to be a problem. Yeah, yeah. I I wrote a I think a blog post early on about that. Yeah. And and I just knew that this was going to be one of those things that we're going to have issues. And the other was um, the whole bit with Cassie going up to the tower. And the fact that this is the one place in the game where we had a um, a character moving through a script through different locations, and I really wanted to do it in a way where if you followed her, it'd work, and if you didn't follow her, it would still work. And the problem, the big problem with that was that it was um, it could it could trigger another script at a seemingly random time, which could interrupt something else and break it. So this didn't show up very much during tests, but when we had thousands of people playing it for real, um, Cassie Cassie pulling, you know, having a cutscene when she got to the top of the tower, get back to the um, to the radio studio, could interrupt things like being on the telephone or um, a whole bunch of other things that would just then then break the game. And I think we caught those um, but um, that was something which was hard to catch during test. And then when we find the bug would show up, it'd be really hard to duplicate because it was happening at exactly the right you know, fraction of a second that that would trigger something or break something. Yeah, that's the thing about about bugs. You know, a lot of times you look at these really weird bugs and you go, oh my God, that's like a one in a thousand chance. But when you have tens of thousands of people all playing your game, those one in a thousand things actually become common, you know, for 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 a decent number of people. What the one that I thought was the the most interesting was that um, we have ransom. When ransom walks up and down the stairs to the trailer, um, because of the way the code set up, he 
you know, the code thinks that he'd be walking backwards when he's moving upwards and, and walking. So we had to lock his facing to either right or left when he was on those stairs, which is fine. And as soon as you leave the stairs, it would unlock it. But some people would apparently use the map while he was on the stairs and he'd be teleport, he'd teleport to some other place while he's still being locked. And so you people would see him climbing the tower facing to the left instead of facing back, which was, you know, just, it wasn't a big issue. It was just a um, aesthetic problem. But there was another bug, which we didn't realize is related, was when he, when he finally got to the blast doors and was trying to blow them open, because he was locked facing left and right, his animation would never trigger and the game would, would essentially hang at that point. Um, and it was tied exactly to the same thing. So it was an easy fix once we figured it out, but it was just really bizarre because we get these save games with him being locked, but when we loaded them, it would, it would work fine because it wasn't something which was getting saved out. Yeah, I think that was a that was a common issue with people who were like in these states you talked about or people who were up on ladders and then they would get teleported off of them. Like one of the one of the bugs we fixed in the very first patch was you know, if people were standing on ladders and then the game teleported them somewhere, like if, you know, Ray was up on a ladder and then you unlocked the Vista with the sheriff and we teleported Ray there to have the conversation with Reyes, she was kind of yanked off the ladder and, you know, the proper code wasn't run to switch your costumes. And I think, I think, you know, that's kind of the same issue you were talking about. Right. right. And I think, I think looking back at it now, it's, you know, I'd want to kind of do a, do a system level fix for that. I mean, the way we fixed it is we just found all the places you'd be teleported away and we changed the animations. But I think this is the kind of thing where it's like, I would want to change that at the system level, you know, so we didn't have to go and code that stuff. But we, I think we were afraid to make that fix on the yeah, system level. Yeah. If we, yeah, since we were just patching, you know, we didn't want to, we didn't want to make a change like that, but you know, I, I kind of look as a development engine we're using for this game is really like the Maniac Mansion version of Scum. You know, it's like it's just it, you you go through revisions and then, you know, by the time some of those later games came out, it was a very mature engine. And a lot of these weird things like this were just kind of dealt with by the engine automatically. All right, next question is from Burn. How is the business going? Are you selling enough products for part two or a completely new game? You know, it's it's really hard to say. It's been less than a month since the game has been out. And, uh, you know, I think, I mean, unless you have this weird, like, massive monster hit right off the bat, I think it's too easy to say. Um, we have not broken even yet. So if you kind of look at, and I'm going to talk about the Kickstarter money, but, you know, we'd raised an additional half a million dollars from some, you know, private investors to be able to do stuff. And, you know, we have not broken even yet. So, you know, that, that'll, that'll probably come soon, but, you know, it's, you know, you're dealing, you're dealing with a market, especially on Steam, you know, and the other consoles and platforms is, you know, it's a very long tail market. You know, it's, it's very rare that you have a game that just keeps selling incredibly well nonstop continually. So um, I think it's being some, some time. It'll probably be a good six months before we really understand, you know, whether the game was, was kind of successful at that level or not, because it's really about what, what is your tail? 
right? Do you, do you, do we have a really strong tail? Like I look at our tail right now and it's actually it's actually fairly decent, but that's only a month, right? So, you know, looking at it two or three months later, it's like, do we have a strong tail or, or are we now selling one or two copies a day on Steam? And I think, I think there's going to be a little more time. Um, plus, you know, the Steam marketplace is just so driven by sales that, you know, you often will make more money on your first sale than you did on the launch of your game. So until we kind of get to that point, which is not going to be soon. I mean, it's, we don't want to put this game on sale immediately. So it's going to be quite some time before the game goes on, goes on sale. So, so for, pe for people who are waiting for a sale, they have to wait. Yeah. Pe people who are waiting for Thimbleweed Park to go on sale are going to have a long wait uh, in, in front of them for that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's all, it's all just kind of, you know a, a part of figuring it out and i don't think there's any quick answer to that question uh you know plus you know potentially you know there's the ios and the android versions of the game which you know can can, can be very popular as well and you know we may actually do really well on those platforms as, as well so we just don't know so in Harold Cham asks, this was your first crowdfunding game. You've been very open about the process and decisions that you've made throughout the project, which gave us a lot of insight into the creative process. Is this public anonymous feedback better or worse than the interaction you had with superiors back at Lucasfilm? We had interaction with superiors back at Lucasfilm? I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't remember any superiors back at Lucasfilm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't remember anybody who paid any attention to us at all, you know. Yeah, I think I think you can answer that question two ways, right? Because I think the answer, you know, what was it like back at Lucasfilm? I think that was a very unique and novel situation that we didn't really have a lot of interference. And, you know, we really were kind of free. Like, I don't remember anyone ever telling me what to do with monkey island I, I don't ever remember any conversation where management said do this or don't do this you know, do more of this or do less of this the you know those two games are just games that i just built um but you know the other part of the question is well you know what's the kickstarter experience like versus a publisher experience right and and today and and I think you just kind of have two different processes. You know, it's like when you do the Kickstarter, you know, you've got a lot of these backers and they have a lot of expectations and, you know, they're not professional game development people. So they don't necessarily, you know, understand the process and understand why decisions are being made, which I think is why we did such an open Kickstarter is, you know, we would kind of hope that if we had to make changes that people would understand why we made those changes. They may not, they may not agree with them, but at least they would understand why we went about making those. Where if you're dealing with a publisher, you know, you generally have people who kind of understand what, you know, game production is like, and they understand those processes. You have a whole different set of problems with publishers, but so, you know, I, I don't really know which one is better, which one is worse um, necessarily. I mean, certainly in the, in the case of Kickstarter, I know we've talked about this before. You spent a ton of your time dealing with that stuff. So, yeah. But I think know. if, had we had a publisher though, we would have spent a fair amount of time just dealing with the publisher. Um, maybe not, maybe, yeah, you know what? I probably would have been a wash, you know, it's like, I probably spent five or six hours a week dealing with the Kickstarter stuff. And, 
you know, I easily could have spent that time just dealing with a publisher. You know, especially if you had a publisher where you had to, you know, package up milestone builds and then you had to like, you know, take all their feedback and then you had to write feedback on their feedback and all these other things that you do with a lot of publishers. Especially if you just totally dis- disagreed with what they had. Yeah. They said. Yeah. Where it gets really frustrating when they have a, a different vision. And that's, that's a big risk, too, because you could, publisher could totally change the direction that they want you to take the game. Yeah, you hear you hear about that a lot, you know, in in games and you know where where it's just it's, they just have this completely different idea. Or a lot of publishers can become very fixated on focus testing, and you know you'll sometimes get just really crazy suggestions coming back because of some focus test you know that they ran. So it's it's nice to not have you know not have to do with that deal with that. But you know if you kind of look at say launching a new game. You know, if, if if we were going to do a new game on Kickstarter versus a new game on a publisher, I mean, not that this is a decision we're making, but there's like prep work for those two things are very, very different, right? It's like we would have to go pitch the game to a publisher, but the materials that we would put together to pitching a game to a publisher are very different than the materials that we would put together, you know, p- pitching a new Kickstarter. But in both cases, you know, you would still you know, spend several months, you know, putting together the information and, and prepping your pitch for stuff. It's just two different, two very different pitches. Okay, Maurizio asks, I'd also like to hear you talk in general about cases where you had to redesign a puzzle or a story because of some problems that arose during development, which you hadn't initially thought about. Like the wrench puzzle was moved from one part to another uh, when you realized it chose, the story flow was wrong and led you to some changes. Well, I mean, the wrench, the wrench puzzle certainly comes to mind, right? The wrench puzzle, and I think you can see this like in a very early playthrough video we did. I think it was with IGN. The puzzle with the wrench and the pigeons actually happens out on the highway that you get the wrench there. We moved that to being happened on Main Street. And that really wasn't for puzzle reasons. Actually, you moved it in. Getting the wrench is actually in the hotel room, right? Yeah, I guess that. I mean, that's a that's a, a two part move because if you know, originally you got the wrench on the highway, and it just it it didn't make a lot of sense as as a puzzle, you know, because I think the way we'd expected it is that most people would go talk to the pigeon sisters before they walked back onto the highway and got the wrench. But as we did testing, we found out that just wasn't true. It's like almost everybody went and got this wrench that fell out of the van. And then a lot of people would then take the wrench and give it to the Pigeon Sisters without ever talking to them, right? But that just that just felt like the natural flow of how things were happening in the game. And that was when we realized, okay, we have a really big problem. And also the um, fire hydrant that they had run into was blocking the road, but I don't think it was really a convincing blockage. So there were there were just a lot of problems with that puzzle that we so we moved it to Main Street and then moved the wrench to be something you actually got in the hotel. I think in the original design though you still had to call the Pigeon Sisters with the card. I think we originally we were going to have the van in front of the hotel, so you had to call them and the and the back of the van would be open where you could find the wrench and take it from there. Oh, that's right. So. That's right. Now I'm remembering. You didn't actually get the wrench on the highway. That was just this, this little hint that they had the wrench. 
yeah, you get you gave it, you had to give it back to them, but you that was just to force you to remember that there was a wrench from them. Well, you gave it back to them so they could stop the. It was all that the stop the flow of the water there, and then we moved the, the hydrant and the wrench, and we kind of separated them. Right, which which I think helped in a couple of issues. It it helped by it, it blocked off a little bit more of the town, so you didn't have so much to explore initially, and then it also gave you the hint of the wrench. Now, originally, that wrench was actually supposed to be on the other side of the street. Yeah, there was a piece where you wanted me to put the wrench on the right, yeah. and then you'd have to pick it up and, and give it to them, I guess. Right, yeah. Yeah, which we we cut that part just because it didn't, it didn't really feel like it was necessary. Were there any other really big puzzles that we just completely yanked and redesigned throughout the game? Yeah, well, the, the biggest one was probably the whole bit with the videotape. Oh yeah, with with yeah with the Videotron machine, the the movie Tron machine. So originally there was a, another Tron machine in the in the coroner's office, which was the um, enhanced Tron or something. Right, enhanced Tron. And the idea was you were supposed to take the get the security tape from Leonard, who which would have shown Willie coming in and buying the whiskey, and then take that tape and put it in the enhanced Tron along with something i can't remember what it was maybe a photo of Woody, of willie or no yeah something like that um maybe it was a picture of, of everyone in town i don't know and that whole thing just got cut but we liked the movie tron where you had to get the you had to get the beta tape from the movie tron give it to leonard who would then give you the security tape which was his only beta tape that he'd had um but we liked the movie tron or at least I did. So I liked the whole thing with that puzzle and using the pizza flyer. So we kept that part in, turned it into more of a foreshadowing of the end as opposed to a puzzle chain. Yeah, I do wonder whether we should have just cut all that. Yeah. Because there are there are people who are very confused by it. And I think it also stands out as a cut puzzle chain. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it doesn't really the way it was kind of patched up, I don't, I don't know that it flowed as well into the game. Yeah, that's one thing I would, would have. have liked to have done is to find an actual use for the beta tape. Yeah. Was there anything else? Um, I mean, we we definitely cut a lot of puzzle chains super early in the process, but I think those were kind of the two that were really well, cut. The the end game. This never got cut from. Des- we never implemented them, but there was a whole bunch of the the end game part was going to be longer. Um, yeah, it was going to be much longer. There was a whole thing with Clown Girl. Right. Yeah, with the whole Ransom thing with Clown Girl and a whole thing with, with Franklin and a whole a whole other thing with Ray and Reyes. And, I mean, those were just kind of cut because they just it, it just bogged the ending of the game down. I mean, we never implemented them, but it's just looking at the design for them. It really just felt like it bogged it down. And some people have you know been critical of the ending because they they felt they felt that it was rushed and i don't i don't agree with them right that's one of those things that i i don't agree with um you know the ending was cut down to be the way it is on purpose is i think i think doing anything else i think you would just would have felt that the ending just drug on and i think at the point that that revolution the revelation is made i think you want everything to kind of go to its conclusion quickly for for pacing reasons all right, next question is from Vegetman. He says, as a developer, I'm curious how hectic has the last recent, last few weeks been post-launch compared to the last few weeks of pre-launch? 
Well, the, I mean, the last like the last week or so has not been bad. The the two weeks right after launch were incredibly hectic, just because we were dealing with a lot of you know patching issues and things like that that really that really came down. Um, so those have been pretty hectic. And now things have calmed down a lot because we're just we're just kind of dealing with more future issues. You know, there are no big bugs that we're kind of dealing with. We have a stable version of the game that's out there. So it's a it's a lot more relaxed development that we're going through. But you know, we're probably gonna be working on this game, you know, pretty much full time, you know, until the end of July at least, you know, with all the other stuff that we have to do. So it's definitely not over by any means. But it's but it's all just, you know, porting issues. I'm I'm on I've been on like maybe little less than half time for the last month or so, month or two. Um and it'd probably be, I think my part will probably be like that or less going forward. So it's more you and, and Jen, I think, who are doing a lot, and Gary. Yeah, um, well, I'm certainly just doing any, you know, pick up things like, you know, I'll say a few um, fixes for some of the f last features we're doing and some translation stuff and then maybe some reward stuff and whatever else comes up. But it's pretty much, you know, winding down for me. All right, next question is by Enrico. My question is, did you end up reaching a broader audience or are you still selling the game mainly to traditional adventure game fans? Yeah, I, w I would say, you know, one of our goals was to really try to reach that broader audience. And I don't think we've been incredibly successful at that. I think we have we have reached some people, but not as much as I had hoped or not as fast as I had hoped to. Um, we certainly reached, you know, the core adventure game people quite well, but I think we didn't really reach those people. And I don't, I don't know whether that's just, you know, a failure of marketing or whether it's just an intrinsic thing that, you know, the, the kind of retro-esqueness of the game, you know, with the pixel art and the verbs and stuff. I do know for a lot of people who didn't, you know, kind of experience that. They look at the game and their first indication is, oh, I don't want to play this. Once they do play it, I think people really enjoy the game quite a bit. But I, I don't know that that's, that's a, an issue that you know, we could have really gotten around with better marketing because we weren't going to change the look of the game. I mean, that was kind of burned into what the Kickstarter was. I don't know if that's a question that we can really solve through marketing or whether that's a question that just gets solved through word of mouth. I mean, the game has very good word of mouth. And it, so I think that's just that's just kind of the thing that it, time is just going to tell with that. Have you guys watched any of the, the you know, the the YouTube uh, playthroughs yeah, or the yeah, Twitch. Yeah, that. yeah. I watch. I watch quite a bit of those actually. So, so do you feel like those are the people who generally do those? I, I know some of them for sure. I've seen people raving about their experience doing it, and they had a really good time. I'm wondering if that introduced a bunch of people who never would have touched this kind of a game to it, because it was basically a free exposure to it for hours if they want. Yeah, I, I think I think that does. I think most of the people that are streaming the game you know, are adventure game players at some level. I mean, I haven't seen anybody stream the game where it's like, I have no idea what this game is. Um, but but certainly the people that watch them, since a lot of streamers, you know, stream a very wide variety of content, right? There's a couple of streamers that only do adventure games, but some of the other streamers do. And so their audience isn't necessarily exposed to this stuff. And, you know, hopefully they're they're having a good 
a good reaction to it and then going out and buying the game uh, i mean i'm going to say looking at that of the youtuber stuff and then reading the comments in those youtubers i think there is a bunch of that stuff in there but it's really hard to tell it's still hard to parse in that whether or not it's you know following through with these people a lot of them say yeah this is really cool i've never seen anything like this but most of them are adventure game players right yeah i mean we have a lot of people on you know our steam wish list and you know i'm assuming that that you know at the point that we do a sale down the road you know that will convert you know maybe 20 or 25 percent of those people which is actually a fairly significant number so i think a lot of people have you know wish listed the game and i think that's kind of what you do you know when you see something that you're like ooh, that kind of looked neat you know but i'm not totally convinced i should buy it yet i think you you wish list it you know and then later on you know you're notified about something and then you kind of make the decision to purchase it or not but yeah i, I don't think we reached that audience in the way that i had hoped that i hope we did i think we were successful but we weren't outrageously successful which is kind of what i had wanted it to be of course there's still people you know playing and buying games that we did 30 years ago yeah. So, I mean, that's a really long tail. Yeah, that's a very long tail. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> All right, Toman asks, very last question. The clue to one puzzle in the game is to watch the Kickstarter video. How will you preserve that in the future? If and when Kickstarter takes a video down, personally, I think you should make the beta tape as a means to access the video in some future release. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I remember we talked about this when we first did the ending, and I think we kind of went, ah, we'll figure that out later. So, I, I mean, I think the Kickstarter stuff's going to be up for a while. So I'm not too, I'm not too worried about the video being pulled down, but we probably do want to do something where that information is accessible in the game without it being a complete dead giveaway. Where does the video live? Is it on YouTube or is it on their servers? It's on their servers. Um. I mean, one of the things I've heard, and I don't know if it's true now, is Kickstarter has pretty much said, as long as we're around, we're keeping these things up forever. So Yeah, but there will be a point when Kickstarter isn't around anymore, right? I mean, it, it may be, you know, 20 years from now, but, you know, they, they, they certainly may vanish. And I don't think the puzzle is impossible to solve without the video, but it's certainly harder. I, I think if you, someone had to just do a, a search on Google or someplace, they would get the answer. Yeah, that's that that is true. That is true. And also, you know, if you look at the game right now and you just you know, you look at the analytics for the game, I mean less than half the people that start the game has ever have ever finished the game. You know, and I and I think that's that's totally standard, you know, especially for a game this long. Is you know, I mean I can't think of the last game I ever finished that I had played. It's like I always stop. And so I think for a lot of people that you know, they just don't get to the ending. It's not that they're not having fun. I think they still have fun, you know, that but they put it down or they you know, and they haven't picked it up yet or, you know, whatever those issues are. But but yeah, I mean I think it's an interesting point about where that video would go. I mean, just playing back a video inside the game is actually a lot of work. You know, because we we're gonna have to go get like a video playback SDK and all this other stuff. So, um, if we do want to embed it in the game, you know, we're gonna have to you know find an easy way to do that. We just have a link, or yeah. But after the apocalypse, I mean, there will be no <laughs> internet. Yeah, I, I imagine people are still gonna want to be playing Thimbleweed Park because they're fighting off zombies for food. <laughs> 
for eating zombies for food. Eating zombies. Ew. <laughs> Ew. That's gross. <laughs> All right. So we've come to the end of our questions. Do you guys have any closing comments? No. Well, um, if this is the last podcast, then. Well, um, well, is it really the last podcast or it might be the last podcast? Well, it might be. I mean, I can't say for certain. There every podcast might be the last podcast. I guess. <laughs> right. Because, cause, you know, one of us is choking on a piece of granola. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if if uh, Chip Morningstar and Noah Falstein each want to give us half a million dollars, we'll do some more podcasts. <laughs> Someone rec- suggested that we use uh, Patreon to to um, to do more podcasts. To do more podcasts, and it's an interesting thing. Yeah, to continue as a as a discussion. What would we discuss though? Um, games what's the what what's the weather like today in seattle (laughs) it's actually it's actually quite sunny it's nice there's a little bit of overcast but it's it's spotty so we have a lot of blue sky we'll do the game developer weather podcast (laughs) okay well i think that's it maybe forever maybe Maybe. not well if it is forever it is forever forever is a long time it is forever i want to thank everyone for backing the game and for for loving it big thanks to everybody out there who listens to this crap and who plays this crap yeah it's a lot of work to do this podcast well yeah ron's got to go edit an hour and a half hour and 45 minutes worth of crap yeah it's gonna take me like a whole afternoon to edit this whole thing together it's a lot it's a lot of work i mean podcasts aren't just turning on the microphone and recording and then i guess some people do that but i feel like we have to do a little bit of editing all right I'm starting to tear up, so I, I, okay. I figure okay. I figure we should probably go now. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Talk Bye. to you guys. You know, if I never talk to you guys again, I just wanted to say Jeez, what a what Ron. a pleasure. <laughs> Man, you just sort of just keep digging that hole. All right. Talk to you guys later. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. It's Toment. Does anybody want some Toment? It's a Toment. It's an M and seven M. Oh, Toment. Okay.